You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Last week we looked up to verse 26 in John chapter 12. Um, We saw the triumphal entry. We saw um, further rejection by the crowds. We saw Gentiles coming and and wanting to believe. Um, We see Jesus uh, interpreting these events uh, for the crowd as well. We saw last week that uh, Jesus is coming to die for salvation, uh, but in that he's also serving as a model for imitation for us. And so he comes and, and shares that he is going to be fruitful by dying and calls us to live the same way, that we're to die to our own Uh, desires and wants and needs, and by doing so, our life will be fruitful. He calls us to uh, gain life by hating it, um, to ultimately enjoy eternal life. It impacts the way that we view our life right now, uh, to find honor by serving. And and Jesus is certainly the ultimate example for all three of those aspects. And so we saw that last week um, that got us through verse 26, and then that gets us to verse 27, and we're going to finish up John chapter 12 today. I'm excited about what God uh, wants to teach us this morning. There's a lot of discussion in this passage about belief and then particularly unbelief. And so as we look at this section today, I want us to see specifically uh, what we are called to believe in. Um, And then in the midst of that, we're going to look and see what unbelief uh, looks like as well. So um, let's go ahead and jump right into our summary sentence this morning fancy word to start off our summary sentence today, all right? Salvific belief, all right? So this is like a theological way of saying belief that that leads to salvation, okay? So salvific belief, that belief that leads to salvation, it means that we come to agreement with what Jesus says about himself and us through his word. And even though we may experience seasons of doubt— we are no longer inclined towards an attitude of rejecting him, okay? So salvific belief or saving faith, it means that we come to an agreement with what Jesus has presented both about himself and about us through his word, okay? So we're gonna see again, once again in this passage that Jesus is very quick to align himself to unify himself with the Father, right? Like this really intimate, close connection with the Father that you can't have one without the other, right? So Jesus, in, in coming to this earth, is very quick to declare his deity, right? Very quick to, uh, to declare that, that he is the sufficient sacrifice for us, which then entails him also sharing some things about us, right? That, that we're guilty sinners and that our righteousness falls well short of his glory and that we can never attain a, a level of righteousness that would allow us to be um, forgiven, would never allow us to enter into his presence, right? And so um, Jesus says a lot of things about himself, a lot of things about us, and coming to faith and salvation means that we agree with those things that we agree with what he has said about himself and about us. And it doesn't mean that there's not going to be seasons of doubt. But what we see in Scripture is a clear division between those who believe and those who, who don't believe. And that unbelief is always pictured 
in an attitude of rejection. Not an attitude of one who who is doubting and and still very engaged and and wanting to to follow Jesus, but but struggling to do it. Unbelief is always pictured as as a rejection of what Jesus has said about either himself or about us. Right? There, there's this desire to, to not follow after him is what unbelief looks like. Um, I did a quick search uh, regarding the term doubt even in, in, in the New Testament. Um, and when you look at the term doubt, because we talk a lot about doubting our salvation, when you look at the term doubt in the New Testament, it's never applied in such a way where it indicates that somebody is not a believer Instead, it's always used in a way that shows a believer to be ineffective because of the doubt. That doubting leads to ineffectiveness, but doesn't necessarily indicate that, that we're not a true believer, right? So there's going to be seasons of doubt. If I did a show of hands, how many of you have ever doubted your salvation? Probably every hand in this room would go up, right? But I could also probably ask how many of you felt like you, you got saved after seasons of doubt? Probably not. Like, as we've kind of come to, to reconcile that doubt, we realize that we've always been a Christian from the time that, that we, we cross from death to life, right? But that there's been seasons of doubt maybe since we made that decision to follow Jesus. Um, saving faith is, is, is simple at its basic, basic level because you can be a child and get saved, right? Like I think sometimes we, we overcomplicate the gospel in our minds as we've grown and as we've matured and as we've come to a deeper understanding of who God is. Sometimes for some of us, we may think, man, I, I don't know how a five-year-old could ever believe this. Like it's so, we, we've, we've complicated it in some ways. There, there's a real simplicity to the gospel. When you look at the New Testament, you see, you see young people following Jesus. You see one conversation resulting in an individual following Jesus, right? Like not years of, of classes and conversations that have to take place that you can sit down with, with an individual and have a conversation about the gospel and salvation can take place in that person's heart if the Holy Spirit's working. We see that simplicity in the gospel. We see young people getting saved. We see Jesus inviting little children to come to him, right? We see individuals who sit down and have one conversation with either Jesus or a disciple and they, and they wanna follow Jesus, so salvific belief means that we, we, we simply come to an agreement about who Jesus says he is and who he says we are through his word. And that there, there may be seasons of doubt that we go through in, in, our, in our faith because we've been talking all through the gospel of John that there's that initial belief and then we see more and more belief taking place in the life of the disciples as we work through the gospel, right? We said that John is not a gospel for unbelievers to become Christians, it's very much a gospel for Christians to become stronger Christians, right? We should expect that our belief will increase as we move through our life after becoming a Christian. We should all be stronger believers today than we were in that initial belief of coming to Christ, right? And and there's going to be times where there's seasons of doubt that's intermixed within that. But the big difference between belief and unbelief is that we're no longer inclined to reject We're no longer inclined to reject uh, what Jesus has to say. We're no longer inclined to reject what he has to say in his word, okay? So salvific belief means we come to agreement with what Jesus says about himself and us through his word. And even though we may experience seasons of doubt, we're no longer inclined towards an attitude of rejecting him. That's true of us if we are really a Christian. 
for our kids to be saved, we must believe that Jesus is God. We must believe what the Bible says about him is true and that because of our sin, he's the only way we can be made right with God. All right, we see this in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 50. And I told you that I want to point out some specific things that we are called to believe if we're truly Christians. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that, he, that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Point number one this morning is that we need to believe God's glory matters most in our most troubling times. We need to believe God's glory matters most in our most troubling times. For our kids, we can trust that God's plans are always good. Believe God's glory matters most in your most troubling times. This is Jesus admitting that his soul is troubled. This is a troubling time for Christ. He has come to the end of his earthly life. He is moving very quickly towards the crucifixion, right? And he is troubled about that. And he asks kind of a rhetorical question to himself. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, right? Like this is Jesus also acknowledging that escaping this is not going to be possible. This is, this is God's plan for this moment in time in history, right? And so he's not gonna ask that, that he be saved from this. It's for this purpose that he's come to this hour. And then he prays, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. We need to believe that God's glory matters most even in our most troubling times. And that's certainly how Jesus is pushing forward in this uh, time of trouble. He is concerned about the Father and the Father's glory being made known. Now, the context here in this passage is that Jesus is greatly troubled, but not by the physical pain that's coming, but but the sin and separation that he'll bear. I think this is one of the um, potential flaws of like the movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? Because we as earthly individuals will sit and watch that display or demonstration of Christ going to the cross and we get very caught up in the physical pain that Jesus is enduring in that, right? Like we see the beating, we see the crucifixion and we get very caught up in the physical aspect. Jesus didn't die the worst death of any human being from a physical standpoint. Now, was it absolutely physically painful? Absolutely. But I think when Jesus is talking about being troubled in his soul, it's far less about the physical pain that he is going to endure, and it's more about the spiritual battle that is going to ensue, right? That he's going to have to bear the sins of the world, experience separation from his Father on the cross. That's where the the troubling aspect is coming for him, that that he's going to bear the sins of the world. Now, think about the, the guilt that you feel bearing your own sins, right? We, we can't even fathom or comprehend what it was like for Christ to bear the sins of the world. The, the most awful, most heinous crimes and sins ever committed for Jesus to bear that guilt upon the cross, to die in our place, to make that payment for us, that's something that we can't fathom, 
right? And we try to display that in a movie like The Passion of the Christ, but what gets lost in that really is the spiritual piece because we, we very quickly pick up on the physical pain. Jesus is troubled for what is to come, and it's very, very much about the sin and the separation that he's going to have to endure to make salvation possible. But Jesus is a great example for us in that, one, obviously his troubling time is far more troubling than we will ever experience here on this earth, right? But I think he, he models something for us that's worth us seeing this morning and taking away from it, that number one, being saved from an hour of trouble is not always the best. Being saved from our hour of trouble is not always best for us. Jesus acknowledges that here, that it wouldn't be the best situation for him to be saved from this hour, for his purpose has come in this hour, he says. I think it's helpful for us, again, on a much lower scale, to not always assume that being saved from our troubling time is what's best for us either. It wasn't for Jesus. And we've seen time and time again in Scripture how God uses trials and God uses difficulties. He uses those seasons in life to accomplish both his own glory and our good in the midst of it. Being saved from an hour of, our hour of trouble is not always best. Number two, there is always purpose in our hour of trouble. God never brings us into the midst of difficult situations without there being great purpose in that, right? God doesn't just arbitrarily allow things to go awry in our life. He doesn't arbitrarily just have us going through pain and suffering and difficulty, right? It's not by accident that we find out that either ourselves or somebody that we care about greatly has cancer. God brings us through those type of situations and there's always purpose in it. So it's not always best that he saves us from it, There's always purpose in the midst of it. And then number three, we pray for God's glory in our hour of trouble to help us see it. Because we're not prone to to, to view things this way, right? When we're going through times of suffering, we're very quick to want out of it, right? When we don't get out of it, we're very quick to question what the purpose of it is sometimes even doubting that there is purpose, right? And rarely are we concerned about God's glory if we've kind of made it to stage three. We're far more concerned about our own, our own self-being, right? Jesus prays specifically for the Father's name to be glorified. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. Some people in the crowd think it, think it thundered. Others think that an angel has spoken to him. Jesus simply answers and says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So there's a demonstration here, again, that Jesus' prayer has been answered. Again, Jesus says, I am praying not for my own benefit, but for yours, so that you can see God answering prayer. You can see God's purpose and design behind some of the things that are being observed and witnessed around him. We need to pray for God's glory in our hour of trouble to help us see it. I think John Piper does a great job uh, in timeless articles and sermons of talking about the fact that God's glory is our good, right? Sometimes, and and for years, I've defined God's sovereignty as 
his ability to work all things for his glory and for our good. Sometimes I'm afraid, though, that we, we separate those two things as though they are mutually exclusive, that God does things for his glory, and then he also does things for our good, and, and, and both end up being the result, but, but separately, right? And we need to see the fact that God's glory is our good, that they, that they go hand in hand, right? And so it's not always about him doing good things to us. It's about him accomplishing his glory, which is absolutely a good thing for us, right? So he keeps that promise in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for the good of his children, but we have to filter that good through the fact that his glory is what is at stake. His glory is what he is seeking to accomplish and absolutely will, right? And so Jesus prays, says, Father, glorify your name. Everything in creation is designed to bring glory to the Father. We know that. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we content with God's glory being the purpose for events in our life? Are we willing to go through difficult times so that God's glory can be put on further display? Are we willing to endure suffering and to endure trials so that God's glory can be put on display? I put in my notes, what would it look like if I lived every second of my life to glorify him alone and that was all I was consumed with? What would it look like if we lived every second of our life with a a mindset or or a perspective of how, how can God be glorified in this? Jesus was very intentional going through the, the most difficult season of his earthly existence. His soul is troubled, but he understands there's purpose in it. And so instead of praying to escape it or to be saved from it, instead he prays for God's glory to be accomplished in it. Being saved from our hour of trouble, not always best for us. There's always purpose in it. And we, as fallen individuals, Jesus doesn't have to pray for this to help himself, right? He says he's, he's doing this for those that are listening. We, as fallen beings, do need to be conscious of the fact that as we are going through difficult times, we need to pray. We need to pray for God's glory to be accomplished so that we are self-aware to be looking for that glory, right? Remember we said um, in the discussion of Lazarus' death, right? Like, his glory is going to be accomplished, But if we're not careful, we will miss being able to partake in it. We'll be so consumed with ourself and our own sorrow, we'll miss that his glory is being accomplished around us, right? So in this passage, we start off by saying, we need to believe God's glory matters most in our most troubling times. That we don't need to worry about trying to get out of it too quickly. We don't need to doubt God's purpose in it because there certainly is purpose and that purpose is connected to his glory. Number two, We need to believe God's word based on what it says rather than what we've heard. Believe God's word based on what it says rather than what you have heard. For our kids, we should always trust what the Bible says. Look what he says here in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Right? So Jesus declares to them, and this may be one of his last sermons that that this crowd will hear, because it talks about him hiding himself from them uh, later in this passage. 
but he declares to them, here's what's about to happen. The world's about to be judged. The ruler of this world's about to be cast out. I'm about to be lifted up, and I'm going to draw all people to myself. And the way that he says this is an indicator about his death, because one, the passage tells us he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, and the crowd picks up on his allusion to death because they jump in very quickly and say, whoa, we've always heard that the Messiah lives forever. Like, how, how is this possible that, that you're going to die if you're, the, if, you're the, if you're the Messiah that we're to look for? How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Right? So they're confused because of what they've heard from the law. Right? Whereas Jesus is God's word and he is declaring truth to them, they're hesitant to receive it because of what they've heard previously. The context here is that the crowd only wants to dwell on the messianic passages that impact them. Now, lest we think for a second that, that Jesus' death is veiled in the Old Testament, it's not. Like we can, we can find passages that deal with the suffering servant. We see passages that talk about the death that Jesus is going to experience as our Savior. Now, there's a whole lot of passages that, that talk about what they're talking about. Right? This eternal reign, that, that there's a covenant with David, that his descendant will sit on the throne forever. Right? So, so they're very quick to jump to those passages that impact them, that benefit them, that, that are passages that they want to see fulfilled, but they've missed some of the other pieces of God's word. And some of it may be, may be uh, basked in tradition versus their own personal study of what God's word has to say, right? Because it even says, we've heard this. Maybe it's not something that they've seen with their own eyes in God's word. It may simply be tradition that's being given to them. Well, let's see what Jesus specifically tells them that we today need to believe based on what God's word says. Number one, that Jesus' death brings judgment for the world. It brings judgment for the world. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Well, death is going to bring judgment in two different ways, right? One, it's going to bring judgment on the sin of those who respond to him in faith, right? God's justice is going to be put on display and his wrath will be poured out on his son. And those of us who, who believe in Christ will be spared from that same display of judgment. Now, the world's also gonna be judged through his death in that rejecting Jesus will bring judgment upon them, right? They will solidify their eternal judgment, one, because of their sin, and then coupling that with their rejection of Christ. So Jesus says, my, my death is going to bring judgment for the world. But number two, he also says it's going to bring defeat to Satan. Not only will the world be judged, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus' death brings defeat to Satan. In um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about him canceling the record of debt that stood against us, set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's something that takes place on the cross, 
Jesus dying in our stead that opens the floodgates for salvation to occur. All right, we saw this in, in the book of Revelation, and we said that there's, 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 there's different interpretations for that passage in Revelation 20 that talks about Satan being cast into the pit, right, for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations, right? I told you that I believe that has happened right now, one, because of this passage, because Jesus talks about this casting out of the ruler of this world, who we know is Satan, right? So that in his being lifted up, he will draw all peoples to himself. I told you one of the main differences that we see in salvation's history prior to the cross and after the cross is the amount of influx of people from other nations coming to Jesus, right? Old Testament leading up to the the crucifixion of Jesus, it's very much a Jewish people of God. Now you have some Gentiles that have come in, right? You've got people like Rahab and Ruth, particularly that we see in the Old Testament, who are not part of the Jewish nation, but have, have been accepted, have been grafted in, right? Have become a part of that community. But after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, when I believe Satan is cast out and limited now in his ability to deceive, the nations start coming to Jesus, right? And Jesus can very confidently tell his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that it works because what we see in Revelation time and time again, throne room scene after throne room scene, there are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping Jesus, right? So there's this decisive victory that happens on the cross where Satan is defeated. He's cast away. He can't deceive the nations like he had been doing previously. And number three, his death brings salvation now to all kinds of people. His glory is seen through the merger of his love and his justice displayed through the cross, right? And we we see both. We see how a loving God does not have to set aside his justice or holiness, that he loves us as his creation, and so he therefore puts his son in our place, pours out his wrath, executes justice upon his son so that we can be spared, right? So he's demonstrating both love and justice on the cross, And through that display, it attracts the nations to come to him. And you're a part of that group. We're persuaded to follow him because of his love for us. Sometimes I'm I'm dialoguing with individuals who, who question whether or not God can actually love them because of things that they've done, right? What we see in Scripture, and, 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 and this is even for, for those of us who are Christians and then we mess up like after coming to Jesus, like, can he still love me for doing this? What we see in God's Word is that he loved us at our worst, right? He loved us while we were his enemies and made salvation possible for us in that state of being a rebellious enemy of his, right? If he can love us at our worst, He certainly can continue loving us as he's moving us towards that that, that goal of glorification, right? There's not anything that you can do to sacrifice the love of God. He loved you at your worst. He loved you when you were a sinner and an enemy of his, right? Now, we should absolutely feel convicted about sin, especially after we come to being a Christian. We shouldn't just flippantly uh, use his grace as a license to sin, right? We should absolutely feel conviction, but we ought to be able to get over it pretty quickly, 
realizing again where Jesus says, I'm not going to cast a stone at you. We don't need to cast stones at ourselves either, right? He puts his display of love on the cross while we are his enemies, while we are rebellious towards him. His death brings judgment for the world. It defeats Satan, and it brings salvation to all kinds of people. All kinds of people see him lifted up, and they come to him. All right, we need to believe God's glory matters most when when we're in our most troubling times. We need to believe God's word based on what it says rather than what you've heard. That necessitates you being in God's word for yourself and not simply relying upon me or anybody else to give it to you. All of us probably have testimonies of us being taught something in our previous life, earlier in our life, and then we're studying scripture and we're like, hey, this is different than what I've heard. Right? Like we, we probably all have testimony of that where, hey, I was taught something, and now that I'm like big enough, old enough to look at it in God's word myself, like I think it's I think it's clear that it's saying something different than what I was taught. Right? There is such a need for you to embrace personal responsibility to be in God's word so that it's not simply what you have heard, right? You are you are confidently knowing that you have based your life, you are believing what God says. You've seen it for yourself in his word, not because somebody has simply told you about it. You've seen it yourself. Believe God's word based on what it says rather than what you've heard. And hopefully, like if you, as long as you're here at Sovereign Hope, it's the same, right? Like our goal is for it to always be the same, that what you hear is consistent with what God's word says, that you, that you never see inconsistencies. But we're not perfect here as elders. We're just not, right? And we're not exempt from mistakes. We're not exempt from falling into temptation. Your rule of authority is not me. It's not your Sunday sermons that you get from me. Your rule of authority is God's word. You are, you are, you are enabled to read it and to believe it individually. All right? Number three, believe God for salvation while belief is still possible. Lest we think that we can just continue to put off salvation, that we can reject it up until we decide that it's good for us. This passage paints a different picture to that. Let me get back to John chapter 12. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has, his, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. For our kids, when we trust God, we can be saved. We need to believe God for salvation while belief is still possible. The context here is that you have the people rejecting God, and they're both held accountable for and judged with unbelief. There's two things that happen here. One, you have a picture of the people rejecting Jesus, not believing in him, 
and they're held accountable for it. But you also see this, 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 uh, this part here where, where God is judging them for their unbelief with further unbelief, that there's a, a, a hardening and a blinding that is applied to them in the midst of their unbelief that really seals their fate. The people are both held accountable for and judged with unbelief, and both are taking place. Again, the text reminds us that these people have seen the signs of Jesus. We know they've heard the message of Jesus. They're hearing it once again here. But they've also been given the advantage of seeing many signs, and they still did not believe in him. They, they willfully reject him, right? They're not doubting him. They are rejecting him. They are antagonistic against him. And God gives them over to that unbelief. He gives them over to it, allowing their eyes to be further blinded and their hearts to be further hardened against Christ. For us, number one, we must respond to the light given to us while it's available. What does that mean? That means that when you experience conviction from the Holy Spirit, you need to respond to that conviction, primarily for those who are unbelievers, because you're not guaranteed to always have that conviction. You're not guaranteed to always have it. Right? Jesus talks about those who, who reach a point of fully rejecting him. He, he calls that the, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Where, 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 where a man can't be forgiven from it. Here, Jesus withdraws himself from them, hides himself from them, because in their unbelief they have rejected him to the point now where God gives them over to a state of what Jesus says, darkness has overtaken you. We respond to the light given to us while it's available because number two, by rejecting the light, we become consumed in darkness. That's certainly what happens with this crowd, right? They're not, they're not just content to reject Jesus, right? They're not the people on the side of the street that you share the gospel with, and they're like, that's not for me, right? They've rejected him. God gives them over to this hardened, blinded state that incites them to crucify Jesus, Right? They are consumed in darkness. It's not just enough for them to reject Jesus. They want to rid themselves of Jesus. They don't want to ever see him again or hear his name again. Right? And so, so now they go and, and they put him on the cross. Right? So it's in that state of unbelief that, that God gives them over to further unbelief, blinding their eyes, hardening their hearts. Number three, unbelief is a result of our willful, rebellious, rejection of God and God's willful hardening of us in response to that. See, man, man is fully held accountable here for his rejection. You don't have a, a convicted sinner here who, who wants to believe in Jesus but can't because God is hardening his heart and blinding his eyes. Right? That, that, that's, that's not possible. 
It's not how God functions. God doesn't, God doesn't allow somebody, one, he, he has to create that desire in them to even want to, to, to experience forgiveness and to follow him anyways. So you, so you never have a state where somebody is desiring Jesus and Jesus blinds them so that they can't have him, right? He, he's responding to willful rejection that's already there. It's true what we see in the Old Testament with Pharaoh, we see passages where Pharaoh's hardening his heart, and then we also see passages where, where God is hardening his heart, right? These people have witnessed sufficient miracles to believe, but they consciously rejected God and his word. God purposefully gave them over to their rejection. It, it moves from them not believing to cannot believe in him, right? Because God has given them over to this unbelief state. We need to believe God for salvation while belief is still possible. Now, I have no idea if we've got anybody here that, that is an unbeliever. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. I know we've got kids in here who, who haven't made a profession yet. So I think we're safe to say that, that we still have people in here who need to come to that saving faith, who need to express salvific belief in Christ, right? What, what I want to make sure that everyone's aware of here this morning that is that if you're under conviction— and, and, and seeing a need to believe, you need to respond to that light that's been given to you. You need to absolutely trust Christ for salvation if that, if that is being placed on your heart, if you're seeing that need in your own life. Because as we see here, continued rejection leads to further unbelief. Number four, we need to believe God in a visible way for others to see. We need to believe God in a visible way for others to see. You get this weird passage here thrown in verse 42 where it says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So he's just talked about like these people not believing in him, and now they're in a state where they can't believe in him because they've rejected him fully. Nevertheless, there's some people who did believe in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I don't, I don't know how John is trying to present these people. Are they, are they true believers? Are they, are they uh, initial-type believers, you know, consistent with what we see with the sower and the seed, where they, where they show an initial expression of faith that's not sustainable? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know this is not the desired state for believers, though, to, to be this type of believer who, who is claiming something inwardly but fearful of showing it outwardly. I believe that, that if we're true believers, we need to believe God in a visible way for others to see, for our kids. When we trust God, our friends should know about it. Our friends should know about it. <clears throat> the context here is this text describes a group of closet believers who are fear, fearful of their faith being known. Right? You've got... What, what he's calling people who believe, but they're, they're wanting to kind of keep that hidden. They want to keep that in the closet. They don't want that to be known. They, they're like the, uh, the, the host of a house who's got people coming over, and they don't really have time to clean their house sufficiently, so they just start shoving it and, and cramming it in a closet so that everything looks tidy, everything looks put together, right? These people feel some sort of conviction and some sort of inclination to believe, but they're a little fearful about the implications of it, so they're wanting to keep that tucked away in the closet, right? 
If they're believers, this is certainly not the state that they should be in, right? So number one, these fringe believers feared the response of others to their belief. They're concerned about how the Pharisees are going to respond to them. They also feared having to change their lifestyle. Now, it's a big deal for them to get put out of the synagogue, right? Like this is their, this is their way of worshiping Yahweh. This is all they've ever known, right? Like this is, this is their foundation for worshiping God, and you're talking about stripping them of that. But what we see in the New Testament is that New Testament believers are called to be baptized They're called to be a part of a local church. They're called to partake of the Lord's Supper. These are all public displays of faith, right? We're not not permitted to hide our faith. I mean, some of the basic things that believers are supposed to do, they're they're to be baptized so that others see that, hey, I've I've changed teams. I I now follow Jesus, right? They're to, to be a part of a local church where, Hey, when everybody else is at the lake on a Sunday, I'm, I'm gathering with believers, not because there's something um, inherently righteous about coming to church on a Sunday, right? That doesn't, that doesn't get you to heaven. But by gathering with other believers, the book of Hebrews says we are, we, are, we are doing something that sustains our belief, right? Like we need to gather with other believers. So by gathering publicly with other believers regularly, we are putting our faith on display. And then as we come together, we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? And what are we saying in that? We are saying that I cling to Jesus, right? Like it's his death, it's his life that saves me, not my own righteousness. And these guys are saying, ah, I think I want to stay in the synagogue. I think I want to make my, my, my journey to the temple. I think I, I want to be a part of the sacrifice system. We even see in the book of Acts there's a group of Pharisees who are called believers and they are wanting to still emphasize circumcision, right? Like they're, they're, they're having a hard time breaking free from things that they've been doing previously. Believers are willing to let their lifestyle be changed by what God's word says. Number three, these fringe believers loved their life more than following God. They love the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. This goes right along with what we talked about last week, right? Where we're supposed to die to ourselves. Die to the glory that we can receive. Instead, submit ourselves to God's glory being displayed through us. These guys, if they're believers, man, they are young believers. They are immature believers because they're, they're still consumed with the glory that comes from man. More than the glory that comes from God. But here's why, here's why I hope they're believers. Because I find myself sometimes acting like them, right? Um, sometimes I'm not as public as I need to be with my faith. So I, I want these guys to be believers because I want there to be an element of grace where, hey, you know what? I'm a work in progress. And there's gonna be times where I don't show it publicly like I should. There's gonna be times where, where I don't confess it to other people like I should. There's going to be times where I don't want my life to change as quickly as God wants it to. There's going to be times where I do love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, right? I I want these people to be believers because sometimes I find myself in this group, right? We don't stay in this group and be content with it. Like none of this is desirable. This is not a state that, that you want believers to be functioning in. 
But there's a part of me that hopes they are because sometimes I find myself falling, falling prey to the same things that they were falling prey to. All right, number five, we need to believe God's word to receive life and to avoid judgment. The context here is that Jesus, once again, unmistakably links himself to the Father. It says, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. I have not spoken to my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus calls us to believe in him as the light of the world once again. To follow Jesus is to find clarity about this life and our purpose in it. All right, he talks about being in the light so that we don't remain in darkness. Previously in this passage, he says the one who is in darkness doesn't know where he's going, walks around in darkness and doesn't know where he's going. When we're in the light, we, we discover our true purpose in being created in the image of God. We don't have to walk around not knowing where we're going, right? When, when, when we come to Christ for the very first time, we know exactly where we're going, wherever our shepherd takes us, right? And, and, and God's glory is the purpose for wherever he takes us. Wherever that shepherd wants to lead his sheep, it is meant for God's glory to come about. To follow Jesus is to find clarity about this life and our purpose in it. Number two, to follow Jesus is to hear his words and obey them. Our summary sentence for today necessarily links our belief with the words of Jesus because he's very clear what we are to believe. We are to believe the things that he has said, both about himself, which in turn is talking about his father, and the things that he says about us. We're to believe his words. And if we don't, we'll be judged by it, right? Romans 10, 17 says that our our faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing the word of God. It's how we come to faith initially, and it's how we grow in our faith as well. That, That we need to be exposed to the truth of God's word so that we can believe in it more and more and more, right? We fight sin by hiding God's word in our heart. We want, we want full exposure to it, right? We're catching some heat at Trinity right now because we're asking our kids to memorize an entire book of the Bible, right? Why would you do that? Like, it's hard, right? What I'm graciously trying to help our parents see is you are not comprehending what your kids are exposing themselves to on a daily basis constantly. We have to fight back against that. We have to. Right? And I need them to immerse themselves in God's word, hide it in their heart, commit it to memory, know it, right? so they can live for him, so they can fight sin, so they can resist temptation. We, we grow in our faith 
by hearing his word. And Jesus says, look, I, I need you to, to know my word and to respond to it in obedience. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge them. I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world. But the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, which gives us number three. To reject Jesus is to come under the judgment of his word. And Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, talk about a greater judgment for those who are exposed to more of the word. Right? Those who know the truth and reject it, Luke 12 talks about there being a greater punishment for them versus those who do the things against the word but don't know that they're doing it. They, they, they weren't exposed to it like, like somebody who maybe grew up in church or, or sat under the, the teachings of Jesus, saw all the signs. There's this greater judgment that comes for those who, who have been exposed and have still rejected that salvific belief, that saving faith means that we agree with Jesus about himself, we agree with what Jesus says through his word, and even though we may doubt sometimes, if we've truly been saved, we have moved away from this inclination to reject him, right? Salvation doesn't mean that we're free from doubts. There's gonna be seasons of doubt in our life. Most oftentimes it's due to a lack of exposure to his word, right? We're not, we're, not, we're not filling ourselves with what we need to sustain that belief. But if we're truly saved, we are moving, we, we have moved away from this rejection of him, which is what we see the crowd doing, right? They don't believe in him. They have rejected him. They don't agree with what he says about himself. They don't agree with what he says about us, right? They don't agree with his word, application for us today and it's really easy stuff as far as it's simple application is that you need to make sure you're spending time in the word our faith grows as we expose ourselves to more truth to believe now there's certainly an element where sometimes we need people to speak truth to us that's absolutely true but if our faith is sustained only by what people are telling us, we, we've kind of grounded ourselves on, on potentially somebody else's word if we're not measuring it with God's word. For you to grow in your faith, you have to be in his word. You have to. You have to be exposing yourself to it. Faith comes from hearing his word and responding to it. Make sure you're spending time in the word, our faith grows as we expose ourselves to more truth to believe. So you may be sitting here today and, and you may be going through a season of doubt or discouragement. You may be even wrestling with, with terms like depression. Like, is that true of me? Like, is that, is that the best word to describe the state that I feel like I'm in right now? The absolute best antidote for all of those type of feelings is God's word, right? And, and, and it sounds too cliche to, um, to be intentional and loving for me to say that, right? Like it's not a cop-out for me to just say, well, just be in his word and that'll fix all of that. It's what Jesus is commanding, right? Jesus is commanding that we know his words and we believe those words, right? 
Number two, is there anyone significant in your life that is not aware you are a believer? Right, going back to that fringe group that was fearful of others knowing about their faith. Can you think of anybody in your life that doesn't know that you're a believer? Somebody you work with? Somebody that you've kind of kept it hidden from? Make it a point to make that known to them. Right? There shouldn't be anybody in our life that, that would be surprised to, to find out that we're a Christian. Like that should be known. That should be common knowledge with people that we come in contact with, especially people that we see on a regular basis. Is there anyone significant in your life that is not aware you are a believer? Maybe somebody that you enjoy a hobby with. Maybe, maybe a neighbor that you're, that you're uh, in conversations with consistently that, that you've just never brought it up. They, just, they, would never, they, they don't know. And make that known. Don't be like this group of fringe believers who were hesitant to let their faith be known. Make it known. All right? So we said that we need to believe God's glory matters most in our most troubling times. We don't need to try to escape it. We need to look for God's glory to be put on display in those troubling times. Believe God's word based on what it says rather than what you've heard. Believe God for salvation while belief is still possible. Respond to that conviction that may be in your heart right now if you're not a believer. Believe God in a visible way for others to see. And then number five, believe God's word to receive life, to avoid judgment. Believing faith means that we come to agreement with what Jesus says about himself, about what he says about us. We find that truth in his word. And even though we may experience seasons of doubt, we are no longer inclined towards an attitude of rejecting him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that for many in this room, you, you opened our eyes, you softened our hearts so that we would believe the light. God, we thank, the, thank you that you loved us despite our sin. You sent Christ to be lifted up on our behalf And we thank you for including us in the all peoples being drawn to him. God, I pray that we would never hesitate to put our salvation on display to those around us, that we would never allow fear to cause us to fall backwards or to shrink back from opportunities to tell of your glory to others. God, I pray that you would strengthen our belief and our faith in you, Father, for those who are in seasons of doubt or discouragement, times of sorrow or despair, God, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, encourage them in their faith. God, help them to to even believe in their faith in you. Um, Lord, help them to see that, that in Scripture, unbelievers are guilty of rejecting Jesus. They're individuals who don't agree with what Jesus says. God, help us to see that that Scripture does have believers who are working through doubts and struggling to grow in their faith. But God, help us to see that the way we grow best is to, to be filling our hearts and minds with your word. That our faith comes from hearing and then therefore responding to what we've heard. God, give us the grace that we need to further agree with you. God, I pray that you would continue to change our lives 
so that we are conformed to the image of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.